And Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And when they believed Philip as he preached, Good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord... They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithful testimony of how your kingdom grew in those early days and months and years. And I pray that as we look at this passage, that it would give us hope that you're still working, that you're still on a mission, calling people, men and women, boys and girls, to faith and life in Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen. There really is no replacement, no substitute for on-the-job training. It's something that every employee quickly learns. Uh, When you start a new job, you're often inundated with requests from the HR department. You've got to make your tax withholdings, you've got to do 401k contributions, you've got to make health insurance elections, and then someone in HR might give you a operations manual 
which is this huge booklet that has all the stuff about the organization. You try to skim over it and read as much as possible, but you feel like you're trying to drink water from a fire hose. But some of the most important things about a job or an organization, they're not written in the manual. Some of the most important things you can learn about this new job are things that you learn at the water cooler, at the copy machine, and in the parking lot. They're things like this. Sometimes the boss lets us leave at like 3.30 on Friday afternoons. Um, If you want to get your financial reimbursements quickly, take the accountant Starbursts. Because she loves Starbursts. And you'll get reimbursed within... 24 hours. Uh, And beyond those little things, you learn about the culture, the nature, the trajectory of any business, any organization, simply by by being there, by interacting with the people, by by interacting with the employees and the clients. And, And that's one of the best ways to learn whatever job it is that you're taking, whatever that new task is. And I think this passage in Acts chapter 8 is one of the many places in the Bible where we get on-the-job training about the kingdom of God. We have several places in the Bible that teach us explicitly about who God is and what he's like and what his kingdom is like and about. But we also have several places in the Bible where we have basically snapshots. We have clips of, of what... His kingdom is really like. And in Acts chapter 8, I think we see that. We see the nature of God's kingdom. Uh, if you remember last week, Stephen was killed for his testimony, for proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stephen was an up-and-comer in the church. He was a rising star, and his life was cut down through persecution and uh, through death. And one of the things I want us to see this morning is that even in light of that, in the face of that, God is still at work. God is still on a mission. And God addresses our insecurities and our fears all along the way while he's leading us forward, while he's growing his church, while he's drawing people to himself, and while he's changing each one of his children. Uh, little by little, day by day. So, first thing I want us to think about from the passage is simply this. It's, I want us to see Saul the missionary. Saul the missionary. You guys familiar with the term unintended consequences? Uh, you know what that means, right? Where folks are working toward one thing, they're working toward one goal, they may be trying to get one result, maybe scientific uh, discoveries, maybe introduction of a new species of plant or animal into an area with a very clear and specific goal, but something different happens. My favorite example of this is uh, kudzu. You guys know about kudzu, right? It was brought to the United States from the Far East uh, to help feed cattle. It was not intended to grow over everything. Um, That was an unintended consequence. And uh, Saul had a very specific goal and purpose in his life. He wanted to snuff out Christianity. 
He wanted to stop it in its tracks. He would stop at nothing. And last week we saw as, as Stephen was being stoned, as he was being uh, murdered for his testimony, the text says that, that there was a man named Saul in verse 58, and they laid down their garments at his feet. And it, it, it didn't mean that he was just a really nice guy, like, yeah, I'll hold your coats for you. Uh, it meant that he was, he was signing off on the martyrdom of Stephen. Verse 1 of chapter 8 reinforces this. Saul approved of his execution. And what we see happening is when Saul was helping murder Stephen, it, it gave him courage to uh, persecute the church even more. It emboldened him, and we read about it at the, the first part of chapter 8. He was going from house to house, dragging people off to prison. The ESV says that he was ravaging the church. The translation literally means he was wreaking havoc among the Christians. He was devastating the church. He was a one-man wrecking crew, and his goal was to snuff out and to destroy Christianity. He was hell-bent on stopping the message of the Christian faith. And there are a couple things that I think we can see from these first few verses of Acts chapter 8. The first is this. It's not always safe to be a Christian. Nowhere in Scripture or in the history of the church is following Jesus Christ said to be easy, comfortable, or safe. Jesus said it like this. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And this is one of the counterintuitive things that, that we've seen throughout history as people suffered persecution. They often, as a result of it, have enjoyed deeper and sweeter and more powerful fellowship with God than they ever have before. They've been forced to cry out to Him, I need you, and there's nowhere else that I can turn, oh God. The Apostle Peter said it later on in 1 Peter, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you. As though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The unintended consequence was Saul was actually driving these early Christians deeper into the arms of their Savior Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought that maybe... The hardest things in our lives could actually be the things that God uses to show us how much we really need Jesus and how wonderful and glorious God's love for us truly is. Another thing that we see from Saul the missionary is that the church came together. Look at verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Uh, this terrible crime, the loss of a shining young star in Christianity, actually rallied God's people. They came together to mourn the death of their beloved friend and brother in Christ. Their hearts were knit together even through their tears and their pain. 
Instead of stopping them, it helped them know how much they needed one another. Sometimes, as Christians, we do a great job of rallying around one another when we're hurting. Sometimes we drop the ball. And this passage, I think, is a simple encouragement for us to move toward people who are hurting. And we don't know what to say sometimes. We don't know what to do. That doesn't matter. You don't have to have all the answers. Just move toward folks that are hurting and are in pain. Reach out to them. And if you're going through a hard time, don't be afraid to ask people for help. To ask them to pray for you. To ask them to be with you, to sit with you. So many times we don't want to be a burden to folks, but uh, it's often when God grows us when we ask people for help. The church came together. Another thing that we see as Saul is a missionary here is uh, that the Christians were scattered. It's one of the things we see from Acts chapter 8. Things got so bad that many of the Christians in Jerusalem left their, they felt like their only option was to leave. And so they went to parts of Judea and Samaria. And I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. We've probably seen war movies where there there are lines of civilians walking out of cities that have been bombed out leaving their homes and only carrying what they can carry in their hands. And and we think about World War II movies or maybe places in Syria or other war-torn areas where people just leave with essentially the clothes on their back. And the persecution of Christians was so strong in Jerusalem, partly in part because of uh, of Saul, that people just left. They were scattered and they went to... Judea and Samaria. And I'm sure Saul thought that he was winning. I'm sure he thought that this tactic is working. I've got these Christians on the run. But remember, look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. In verse 4, those who were scattered went about Preaching the word. So these people who were leaving, their faith in Christ, their trust in him never waned. Jesus said it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And this is part of that fulfillment that the gospel is breaking out into the next level of God's promise. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. This is a declaration of the fact that God is in control. Saul was trying to snuff out Christianity. What was he doing? Unintendedly, he was sending out missionaries into the world. He was sending people forth to proclaim the gospel message. It's almost laughable. God rules and reigns over everything in this world. Jesus Christ is the king. We see it throughout the Bible. One of the places where we see it so beautifully is in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. 
how he was sold into slavery, how he was forgotten by his family and God was with him every step of the way. And then at the end, uh, he and his brothers are, are united and he actually saves his family and he tells his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's exactly what's happening here. Saul intended evil. He intended to destroy Christianity, but God had other plans. God's kingdom is unlike anything else. I think one of the obvious implications or applications for us is that we can begin to learn to trust God when we walk through difficult times. When things don't go our way, when things don't go my way, I'm really quick to say, where are you, God? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared for me. When things aren't going well, we want to throw in the towel. But God is working. And this is one more snapshot, one more image where God can use something that's intended for evil to bring about glorious good. Saul, the missionary, even before he wanted to be, he was sending people out with a message of grace. That's the first thing I want us to see this morning. The second thing is I want us to look at the Samaritan ministry, verses 4 through 25 really talk about this, the beginning of the Samaritan ministry. And this Samaritan ministry is, is led by Philip. He was one of Stephen's friends. He was one of those guys that was uh, voted on by the church in Acts chapter 6 to help distribute food uh, to the widows. He was also an incredible evangelist. He was someone who proclaimed the gospel of God. He preached Christ to them, it says in verse 5. We'll come back to that. But I think one of the things we can see here is that there were, there were challenges and blessings to the ministry in Samaria. There were challenges and blessings then, and there are challenges and blessings now to us, our lives, and our ministry. So what were some of the challenges then to the gospel going to Samaria? Well, if you remember the gospel of Jesus Christ going to Samaria, it, it would have been hard for these early Christians to take that message to Samaria. See, remember, Samaria was a place that was written off by most Jewish people. Samaritans were people who were considered spiritual sellouts by the Jews. If Jewish people were traveling north, they would literally go out of their way to avoid going through Samaria because they viewed these people with such disdain. And this is part of the... Uh, the scandal in John chapter 4 when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. It wasn't just that it was a woman he was talking to in that culture. It was that she was a Samaritan woman. And maybe here God is using this persecution by Saul to push these early Christians out of the nest. To force them to take the gospel message to some of the people that they had written off in their lives. So that's one of the challenges now, that it was actually Samaria. Another challenge was 
uh, this guy named Simon the Sorcerer. The text tells us that these people, verses 9 through 11, were literally under Simon's spell. They all paid attention to him, verse 10. This man is the power of God that is called great. He ruled the show. He was the, the, the only show in town for a long time. And Simon wasn't a cute magician. He was an agent of Satan to deceive and enslave and oppress people. And, and this region seems to have been under his grip for a long time. And it, it, the text tells us that he believed the message... But that later on, he tried to buy the privilege of giving people or pouring out the Holy Spirit on folks. And the Apostle Peter says that you're someone who's still filled with bitterness and you've got bondage in your life. And he called this man Simon to repent. So those are some of the challenges to the gospel going forth. What are some of the challenges now? What are some of the challenges that we face in the 21st century in Baton Rouge? What are some of the unique hurdles and roadblocks and tendencies that may hinder us and other people from coming to the kingdom of God and flourishing in God's kingdom? Well, I think they're similar to the ones they faced. Christians around the world still have a lot of trouble ministering to people who are different from them. Race, class, education, background, which school you attended or which school you attend, we are all tempted to default to distinctions like these and many others to keep us from pursuing and loving people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can we identify if we think this way? Um, Who are the people that you write off? Who are the people that you're intimidated by? Folks that you ignore, folks that you make fun of. Those may be the ones that are the hardest for you to identify with, the hardest to move toward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to constantly be reminded and work toward the reality that Jesus himself said in John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life." Remember in John 4 with the the Samaritan woman, it's so interesting. It says in John 4:4, 4, 4, Jesus said that he had to pass through Samaria. That he had to Why? He had to go through Samaria to show his disciples and to show us that the gospel is for all sorts of people. It's even for them. It's not a drill. It's not an exercise. It's a demonstration that the gospel is for all sorts of people. Even the people that we think would never or could never believe it. Another challenge now, uh, we, we can ask the question, how have we been fooled? These people were under the spell of Simon the Sorcerer, and uh, I may be wrong about this, but I doubt many of us are under the spell of a magician. It's possible, um, but 
there are plenty of temptations that we face. There are plenty of things that we're tempted to fall for. What are the idols that are appealing to us? What are the hurdles to us finding lasting joy in Jesus Christ? Is it the thought that if we have enough stuff, we'll be happy? That if our children perform and achieve in a certain way, we'll be satisfied? Is it the temptation to believe that if we can just escape from our lives every now and then, that we'll be ultimately happy? We probably would never say this out loud, but maybe it's if I have more money or get the promotion at work or if the right people like me or if the right people like my photos on Instagram, then I'll be okay. There are all sorts of things that can have power over us. John Calvin said it like this, our hearts are idle factories. We are always tempted to look to other things for salvation, but what were we made for? We were made to find satisfaction and flourishing and fulfillment to blossom now and into eternity in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we constantly need to be reminded of his love and his kindness and his compassion for us. It's why the Bible says that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Why we need to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Think about it like this. Um, Around your house, in your office, on your smartphone, you have pictures of your family. If you're married, you have a picture of your spouse, maybe your children. You have pictures of your brothers and sisters, your parents. It's not because you forget who they are, right? Oh, yeah, there's my wife. That's who that is. Uh, no, it's, it's nothing like that. It's because, humanly speaking, these are the most important people in your life. This is what it's all about. These are the most important relationships, and I want to remember them. I want them to be front and center in my life, in my mind, in my heart. And that's exactly what uh, needs to happen with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus, pressing on to know Him and to love Him is a huge part of us combating sin and idolatry in our lives. So there were blessings There were curses, there were challenges then, there are challenges now, there are blessings then as well. The nature of God's kingdom is advance and growth. God is on a mission, God's at work. And specifically, how did God grow his kingdom through Philip and these other Christians? Verse 5 says it this way, they preached to them the Christ. Verse 12 says, they believed Philip as he preached to them the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The heart and the bread of butter of Christianity, the apex, the crux, the summation is in one name, Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just about Jesus Christ, it is Jesus Christ. Eternal Son of God, born of a woman, born under the law, Sacrifice for sinners. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Risen Lord, ascended Christ, conquering Savior. The blessing of Jesus is so great that verse 6 
says that the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. People were believing the gospel. They were being baptized. And the gospel turned their whole world upside down, their lives. And they may have said to one another, this is the message that we've been waiting for. This is the truth, the part of the story that connects us to God himself. Look at what happened in verse 8. There was much joy in that city. That's the result. When people hear and believe and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's joy. Jesus brings deep, abiding, everlasting joy. And it comes from knowing that no matter what happens, no matter what the challenge is, my life is hidden with God in Christ. And there weren't simply blessings then, there are blessings now. God's still at work. He's still on a mission. His kingdom is still growing and advancing, sometimes in the most unlikely ways. In our neighborhoods, in our communities, around the world. In and through the ministry of this church. In and through the ministry of other churches in our a city in our town. Even when the odds seem stacked against us and the roadblocks and the hurdles seem too great for the gospel to take root in people's lives, God's working. Because we have a trump card. It's Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners. There's only one name under heaven whereby men and women, boys and girls, must be saved, and it's in the name of of Jesus Christ. People need Jesus. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. Your neighbors need Jesus. Your family needs Jesus. And I think the whole book of Acts is kind of like an invitation for us. As we see God working 2,000 years ago, it's an invitation for us to enter into the lives of people that are around us. To move toward the people that live next door to you, the people that you work with, to move toward your family with the message of God's grace. And just simply ask and look for opportunities to talk about the grace of God with those folks. Love them. Invite them over. Have dinner with them. Invite them to to your community group, to Bible school. Pray for folks to become Christians. And remember, in the midst of all that, The promise of God's word. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. For it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. This is the nature of God's kingdom. Yes, there are hurdles, there are challenges, but God is working to bring people to himself. And he did it uh, in the book of Acts over and over again. And when that neighbor or that friend or that co-worker comes up to you and says, You know what? Could you tell me a little bit about why Christianity is so important to you? Yeah, you know what? I'd actually like to visit your church or your community group. Don't be like, what? What? Really? You want to come? (laughs) You could say, okay, I'd love for you to come along. I'd love to tell you about what Jesus Christ has done for me and in my life. And then the joy will grow. And blossom. Uh, The theologian, Christian writer, pastor John Stott, not our John Stott, but uh, he was a a Christian pastor and theologian. He passed away in 2011, and 
really interesting when you hear people talk about John Stott, people that knew him well, people that kind of knew him, people that only met him a couple times. Almost every one of them would say that he had this incredible memory, this incredible heart for people. So he would, he would pray for people. If he met you just a few times, a lot of times, if he saw you again, he would remember your name and ask about your life and what had been going on in your life. And as he remembered people's names, the stories of his compassion and kindness and care, they added up. They kind of stacked up one upon another. And it's like each of those stories is one more page in this book, not about John Stott, but about Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 8 is one more uh, one more phrase, one more paragraph in that book about how nothing can stop God's plan. A book about the sweetness and joy of knowing God through Jesus Christ. And you know what's so amazing is that this book isn't finished. There have already been chapters written about you and how God has changed you and how God has used you to love and care for other people. And there are more pages and chapters yet to be written about how God is going to transform us more and more into his image and use us to draw people to himself. And I think that's a book that we'll spend the rest of eternity reading and rejoicing over. Because it's the book... It's a book about the story of God's love. And we learn about that in Acts. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we thank you that there is nothing that can stop your purposes not uh, a man persecuting Christians, not a uh, sorcerer who seemed to have sway over all the people in a whole city. There's nothing that can stop your plan. Give us the faith to believe that, to have confidence and joy as we rest in Jesus Christ, as we take his message to others. And I pray you be with us. Thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll receive an offering, take up an offering for the... um